the first activist thing I did in D.C. when I moved there was to do what I always did when I got to a new town. I'd go to the dog pound. Alex Pacheco was a student at George Washington University, and he came in one day and offered to volunteer. The head of the dog pound, her name was Ingrid Newkirk. He was also a vegan, and I was not. I was a vegetarian. And he teased me about putting milk in my tea. I had a cup of tea every morning, and I put condensed milk in it. And he said, do you eat veal? And I said to him, of course I don't. We haven't eaten veal in my house since I was seven. And he said, but there's a, a little bit of veal in every glass of milk. I looked at him as if he was crazy. And he explained, he said, do you think there are retirement homes for cows? Well, I guess not. And he said, why do you think there's a veal industry? It's because you have to do something with the calves when you take them away from the mother so that you can steal the milk that nature intended for them and sell it. Uh-oh, can't have milk in the tea then, can I? She was 10 years older than me, so she she was more savvy than me. You know, I was still 20 years old or something at the time. And we got along so well, we started dating. We became boyfriend and girlfriend, full on for five years. We agreed on everything. Why it was important not to buy things tested on animals, not to wear leather shoes, those kinds of things, just... All the critical stuff. And that's why we started PETA. We were going to call it Justice for Non-Humans, and we ended up calling it People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. From Luminary Media, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Necessary Measures. The first big case that put PETA on the map was when I decided to work undercover in an animal laboratory that was funded by the federal government. I'd read books about it and many articles about the atrocities committed against animals in laboratories, you know, these torture chambers. But I'd never been in a laboratory myself. I wanted to be able to speak about the cruelty firsthand, so I'm not just relying on something that I read in a book. I've seen them myself. I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly what I saw. And so I thought, well, why don't I just go work in a laboratory? You know, duh. So I got a list of all the federal laboratories in the country. Went down that list, trying to see if I could recognize any towns or any addresses. And sure enough, there was a laboratory in Silver Spring. So that was the one closest to where I lived. I was driving a really old, white, beat-up Toyota. I remember driving this beat-up car to the laboratory, and this was the first time I'd ever worked undercover in a place. So I started to get a little nervous. I was pretty much just winging it. It just looked like the back wall of a row of warehouses all adjacent to each other. And one of them just had a you know steel metal door that had a small sign on it that said IBR. 
It stood for the Institute for Behavioral Research, and that was the name of the laboratory. I remember knocking on this metal door. A man answered the door. He was in a white laboratory coat with glasses, you know, well-groomed, short black hair, very soft-spoken, and it turned out to be Dr. Taub. Alex rang the uh, front door of my laboratory. Introduced myself. He seemed like a personable young man. I told him my real name. Told him I was a student at George Washington University at the time. He told me that he was interested in pursuing a medical career. I remember he put his hand on his chin and thought a bit and said, OK, come on in. He took me into his office, which is at the front of the laboratory. I remember him saying, why do you want to, why do you want to do this? He wanted to find out what it was like to do medical research. And I told him that, yes, I was, uh, I was looking for work. Are they hiring? And he said, nope, we're not hiring. However, if he was interested in volunteering, I would be glad to uh, give him an, an experiment to do, uh, give him an experience what uh, research was like. He then started to walk me through the laboratory. I had no idea what to expect. I'd never been in a laboratory before. The place smelled funny, but it didn't, you know, it smelled sort of just like a dog pound. But then he took me into this one room. The stench was so strong, it almost knocked me out. Three sides of the room were just cages from floor to ceiling. The animals were way worse off than I was expecting. They had huge injuries, big lacerations. I was just totally fucking shocked. It was just, uh, I uh, didn't expect that at all. When we got closer to the cages, I could see that they were all crab-eating macaques. They're used in laboratories to a great extent, and the reason why they are used is because they are hard to kill. You don't want the animals to die until the experiment is finished. You want animals that can take a beating and still keep living. Yeah, so if you, if you could tell us um, what's the actual sort of research that you're doing in the 70s and, and up to 1981. Tell me about the, the laboratory. Just describe what it looked like, and then if you could describe the research being done with the monkeys. Well, there are cages, and the monkeys are in the cages. It's the colony room. There's a central open area. And then um, outside of the colony room, there are uh, experimental rooms where the monkeys are taken and we uh, train them. Otherwise, it, it was a standard monkey laboratory. I mean, honestly, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it, it may be that it's years ago, but uh, I'm close to it, and I don't understand what there is to describe. This is exactly what happens. They would get a group of monkeys, and they were crippled intentionally by, the, by Dr. Tubb. We had a neurosurgical suite. Dr. Tubb puts the animal under anesthesia and puts the animal on an operating table. Neural innovation of the arm. 
face down. Enters the spinal cord in two roots. And then he cuts open the back of the neck. They're segregated at the spinal cord. With the scalpel, of course, and then cuts nerves in the neck. If you sever the dorsal root, you can eliminate sensation without affecting the motor innovation. An entire arm goes dead, or a leg, or both arms, or one arm and one leg. You know, each animal was uh, surgically mutilated in a different way. He would always use the word diaphragmation. He always spoke in very clinical terms. So he intentionally crippled the animals. Then the monkeys were kept in cages. We took them out each day. We put them in a restraining chair. It's like an electric chair. You imagine a man in an electric chair. While they were in the restraining chair. Totally strapped down. And uh, we did our training procedures. They had modified a refrigerator to give electric shocks. So they would put the monkey in the electric chair and they would put a tube of toothpaste in his crippled hand. And then they would roll the chair into the refrigerator, shut the door, and start giving electric shock. The only way he could stop it was to squeeze that toothpaste tube with his crippled hand. The monkey had to learn to flex its diaphragmatic arm in order to avoid electric shock when he heard the sound of a buzzer. And it wouldn't stop until he did that. After the monkeys got shocked once or twice, they never experienced that again. They avoided the negative consequence by learning to flex the diaphragm at all. Sometimes they would break their arms, their own arms, when they were in the chair trying to stop the electric shocks. Overall, the big picture, the big experiment was to find ways to get these animals to use their crippled arms, to take a crippled, useless arm and make it so that the monkey could use it for something, you know, to, to grab a piece of food or anything like that, in the hopes that we would uh, be able to teach a human how to regain the use of their crippled arm. That's the whole idea. Sure. Now... I should point out that these animals were deafferented, so there was no pain in the arm. No matter what happened to the arm, the animals could not experience pain. The more time I spent there, the worse and worse it got. Paul was probably the oldest monkey there. I came in one day, Paul was collapsed on the floor of his cage, unconscious. So I ran and got my boss, my boss pulls him out of the cage, puts him on the floor, and we see, oh, holy crap, he's bitten off every finger on his hand. Right at the palm, these perfectly circular blood patches where a finger used to be. And if that wasn't bad enough, then there were, there were bones sticking out of the palm of his hand. The discomfort of those monkeys, and there was no discomfort, gave rise to the development of CI therapy, which has now been used with over a million patients after stroke, cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, and other types of damage to the nervous system. 
This approach has improved the lives of many thousands of children with spina bifida who would have had a tremendously diminished quality of life without it. My 1993 article introducing CI therapy is the most cited article in the field of rehabilitation in the last 30 years. That paper is now recognized as being one of the foundational papers of rehabilitation psychology. There are now seven such papers. This research is responsible for the treatment that has resulted in the benefit of millions of people worldwide. While I'm working in the laboratory, less than 10 miles away, I'm speaking at demonstrations and protests and rallies, which are being covered by the news. So I thought it's just a matter of time before they put two and two together. I remember seeing an issue, a copy of Lab Animal, on top of the filing cabinet in the hallway. Lab Animal is a magazine that sells guillotines and electrodes. It sells all the instruments of torture. In that magazine, there was a picture of me leading a protest. So that really put the pressure on to figure out a way to get these animals out of here as fast as possible, because any minute now, I was convinced they were going to figure it out and I'd be caught. When he went in and he saw how hideous it was, it was quite clear we needed to take some kind of action. And in order to do that, we needed to document it so that we could take our photographs to the police and to experts. We have to now start building a case. Day after day after day, this is the hell those monkeys are living in. One day he came to me and said that he needed to work for pay during the day to pay for his tuition for the next year. He thought that he could do the work I had assigned him at night and would I give him a key to the laboratory. I agreed because earning money for tuition seemed like a very worthy objective. Yeah, so I would just come up with reasons why I could need to be in the laboratory at night. When I would go in at night, I would just bring in great big old cameras. The problem was that they had a silent alarm in the laboratory. A couple of times I triggered the silent alarm. So I'd quickly hide my equipment, make my way to the back door, open up the back door, and there would be two cops. You know, I simply told them, hey, I'm working here. And I triggered the silent alarm by accident, sorry. And each time they just said, okay. So it got to the point where I decided I needed a lookout. So. Ingrid, my girlfriend, she agreed to be the lookout. My role was actually to sit in a parked car. My old beat-up Toyota. Out by the dumpster. Right by the door. In a huge cardboard box with slits for the eyes and a Radio Shack walkie-talkie. These walkie-talkies that are like two feet long. And in order to get it to work, you've got to pull out the antenna. The antenna is like three feet long. So in all, this thing's like four or five feet long. And if anybody came along to the back door, then I could try to reach him inside to warn him that someone was entering the building. Plus, Ingrid knew a guy <clears throat> whose name I won't disclose, who we, I took this, oh, I'll just call him Mike. 
That is his name, actually. So she knew this guy, Mike, and he was able to disarm the silent alarm. That made life a lot easier. When we thought we had enough, then we went to see the Montgomery County Police. The first time going into the police station with the affidavits and the photographs, our attorney, they pretty much laughed us out of the room. You want us to arrest a doctor over some monkeys? Heard that a lot. It was back in the days when there was pretty much just what's called animal welfare. It's okay to slaughter and butcher animals. Just be nice about it. And animal rights pretty much didn't exist back then. We were constantly heckled and ridiculed with people saying, oh, yo, you mean you want to give dogs the right to drive a car or dogs the right to vote? We were shown no respect whatsoever for the positions we were taking. Um, a lot of hesitation to take any action because they just didn't know. But the violations were so cruel, so <laughs> obvious. There's a statute, Article 27, Section 59. I remember it as I'm sitting here. And it violated every part of that, of causing unnecessary suffering. After a couple of weeks, we were able to get them to do the right thing and enforce the law. I remember the raid took place on September 11th. We were riding to the laboratory early in the morning to do a, a surprise police raid. My wife called me to the phone. I was just shaving. It was a research assistant. He told me he thought I had better get down to the laboratory. So I went down. What I found was extraordinary. There was a media circus. There are like 50 television cameras and 50 reporters. Every conceivable media outlet was there. CNN, CBS, NBC, The Washington Post, The New York Times. Standing at the back of the laboratory. You know, the police just knocked on the door. They went into the laboratory and gave them the affidavits and started to confiscate the animals. To see them come out into the sunshine for the first time in all that time and look up at the sky and look around them. They had been taken from the jungle. They had lived with their family and yet they had been locked in this barren room in their tiny cages for years and years. It was highly emotional to imagine what they must have been going through. When the police finally agreed to confiscate the animals, it was actually us who physically carried the monkeys physically out of the laboratory, put them in these large cages and put the cages into a big truck and then drove them off. The next problem is, where are we gonna put them? We had a volunteer who had a basement big enough and empty enough where we could fit all of the cages. Because there was absolutely no place else to put the animals, the police agreed, all right, we'll let you put them down there. And then the police decided after being pressured heavily by the National Institutes of Health 
the police got scared. They're just county police. And they decided they had to return the monkeys. They were told, oh, experiments will be ruined if the monkeys don't come back. And at that time, the monkeys disappeared. The police went down to the basement and found the basement was empty. Yes, my official public position is that I, I have no idea where they went. I have no idea who took them. <laughs> you know, it's silly. But yes, that's been my, you know, the official position. The monkeys had to be looked after on the road as they were traveling away from that area. They had to be kept safe and looked after while we negotiated with the police for their return. And what happened to you that day? Was that the same day that you got arrested? Well, that's a rather dramatic term. I voluntarily went to the police department because I was asked to. I was fingerprinted, photographed, and released on a $500 bail. What were you, you charged with? I was charged with um, providing inadequate care to the animals and cruelty to animals. It was getting worldwide coverage for everything from the Soviet Union's major newspaper called TASS, all the way over here in the U.S. to things like Life magazine was covering it. Everybody had descended from the experimentation community to say, leave this man alone. This is science. You don't understand what you're doing. You can't prosecute a scientist. Who are you? You had all the biomedical groups in the country and you had all the animal groups in the country, each lined up against each other. The NIH, the Justice Department, the American Medical Association. Morning, 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 So it was a clash of the titans. The state will show. Probably the thing I remember the most about the first day of the criminal trial was that on one side of the courtroom, were the vivisectors, the experimenters. consequence of the experiment. If you were to look... But they had no people. There was no audience behind them. And then on the other side of the courtroom was the one prosecutor, one guy. But behind the sole prosecutor, the courtroom was packed. Well, apparently this case has generated a lot of interest. Standing room only, filled with public supporters who were there to try to uh, protect the monkeys. One, there'll be no demonstrations in this courtroom of any kind. Two, when I said the courtroom building was getting seedy, I'd like you to uh, tell us your full name. They designated me as the star witness for the prosecution. My name is Alexander Fernando Pacheco. And I spent one or more days on the witness stand testifying. And generally, what were your observations of those monkey cages? Um, the extreme filth that the cages were in. Uh, Very positive and liberating. I felt justice was being done. Yes, it's a picture of Domitian in his cage. It shows his tail, how it has almost no hair on it. I was able to put a lot of evidence in public view and on the official record. Um, the piles of feces had mold growing off of them. Heavy gauge wires sticking straight up from the floor. The bandage is, is rotting off and it's just all ragged. It shows the exposed, uh, the open wounds where his fingers used to be. And it shows... The reason you can see the fingers a little less than one centimeter, perhaps a half a centimeter. 
Do you agree that the ends of the digits are missing? Yes, I do agree. Do you agree that four digits appear to be dissolving, perhaps by infection? I agree that the distal phalanges appear to be dissolving, and one conceivable process might be infection. Do you agree that the conditions which we have been talking now are of a chronic nature? My laboratory was set up, and the raid was immoral and unconscionable. And to perform this function, have you endeavored to provide your animals with proper air in their environment? Yes, I have. What was I feeling? I was feeling... Yes, yes, I have. Angry. Have you tried to provide necessary veterinary care? As needed, yes. There are dozens of researchers who have done what I have done. Have you ever permitted anybody to abuse your animals? Never. Never. Every major medical breakthrough of the last century has involved research with animals. Smallpox vaccine, diphtheria and polio vaccines, the development of insulin injections for diabetes, blood transfusions, discovery of antibodies, organ transplantation. Something like over 50% of all the tests done on animals do not apply to people. Cancer chemotherapy, cardiac pacemakers, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Coronary bypass surgery, in vitro fertilization, the artificial heart, the list goes on and on. 50 million Americans today would be at risk of death from heart attack, stroke, or kidney failure for lack of medication to control high blood pressure if it weren't for animal research. I think that to try out procedures on human beings that haven't been first tested on animals is the height of inhumanity. And what follows is a very brief finding of what I believe to be the proper decision in this case. Hundreds of people are waiting in the hallways in the court, waiting for a verdict to, to come in. Number one, I don't intend to uh, make a hero or a saint of anyone. On the other hand, I don't intend to uh, tar anyone needlessly, but I do intend to follow my oath and make a decision, which I believe to be the proper decision. The courtroom is packed shoulder to shoulder. Accordingly, I find the doctor guilty of those six charges, which I will correlate to the uh, actual information in a, in a few moments. Now, having found the doctor guilty of six counts... The day that Dr. Taub was convicted of cruelty was... It was indescribable. <laughs> we, there was just... Uh, we couldn't believe that it actually happened. I think everybody was shocked on both sides. The vivisectors were shocked because it's the first time in history that had happened. We were shocked, not only because it was the first time it had ever happened, but I really thought we were going to lose. It was very liberating. It restored my faith in the courts. Finally felt, wow, there is some justice, after all. 
that story hit the news internationally, we began to get sacks of mail. And those letters said something wonderful. Over and over again, they said, what can I do to help? And those are the magic words that allowed us to write back to them and say, you can do a lot. You may not be able to raid a lab, but you can stop eating animals, stop wearing them, stop buying cosmetics that are tested on them. You can educate others. And that's just a terrific thing. Finally, there was some respect being given to the belief that animals have rights. And that really came about because of the Silver Spring Monkey case. That was the turning point. Hello, I'm Pam Anderson with PETA. You probably have heard of the Colonel's secret recipe, but you probably have no idea what goes into making a bucket of KFC chicken. Bob Barker here on behalf of PETA. Sadly, the main ingredient is cruelty. If you're thinking about a trip to SeaWorld, please reconsider. Many chickens are still conscious as their throats are cut. These are captive animals, and they are suffering, and you have to know that. Life in cramped tanks is no prize for orcas and dolphins. These wonderful animals that you've come to see, they're in pain. They want to be free with their families in the ocean. Many have died prematurely at SeaWorld. Taub was convicted of cruelty to six animals. Then he appealed it. Every time we would win something in court, the other side would always, always appeal. And we would be back in court again. And every time we would lose, we would appeal. So it was just never-ending courthouse hearings in courts all around the country and at all levels. It was like a, you know, a roller coaster. Up, down, up, down. Over something like 15 years. Well, I didn't have money to hire lawyers after the first trial, so I had to be my own lawyer and prepared briefs. I was out of work for five years. My wife is an opera singer. She had to stop singing professionally, and she started teaching voice. And she was earning a living. Nevertheless, with the expenses that I have in the legal proceedings, it wasn't enough. When we started out the trials, I had $104,000 in the bank. Now, when I wound up, there was $4,000 in the bank. The f final appeal, they said they're going to reverse the conviction. They're going to make Tab completely innocent. The laws against cruelty in Maryland because he's doing a federal experiment, the cruelty laws don't apply. He is above the law. I was exonerated of all charges. When I received the decision, it was delivered to me by a police officer of the Silver Spring, Maryland Police Department, who 
at the same time returned my $500 bail check. Now, I kept that check for several years, and I didn't cash it. I kept it as a memento. I had to cash it finally because I ran out of money as a result of the years of legal trials. And that's too bad. I wish I had it now as a memento. We had put years of our life into this case. We were very emotionally connected with these animals, trying to secure their freedom, knowing the misery they had gone through. It just made me think, oh my God, if we can't get justice for these animals, I don't think justice is possible whatsoever for any animal. I was out of work for five years when finally I was exonerated and I was hired here at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. It took me two years to get started, so altogether eight years. In those eight years, there is perhaps a million people who could have benefited from CI therapy. There has never been another arrest of an experimenter for cruelty to animals. This arrest was the first arrest of an experimenter and the last time an experimenter was ever arrested and charged with cruelty. It's horrifying when you think about it. There's just absolutely no justice for these victims, absolutely none. All of these people who could have been helped by CI therapy, interrupted by the raid on the laboratory, organized by the animal activists. And that is the final irony. Cruelty to humans. In addition to the criminal case with Dr. Taub, there were a number of legal battles over custody of the monkeys themselves. One of those cases would go all the way to the Supreme Court. The Washington Post later wrote, quote, the two sides would dispute virtually every fact, accuse each other of exploiting the animals for political gain, and call each other liars. If you want to read more in-depth information about what statements made on this episode we were and weren't able to verify, Check out the transcript and footnotes up on our website. It's loveandradio.org. Special thanks to Michelle Harris for heading up the fact-checking process on this one. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode featured Alex Pacheco and Ingrid Newkirk of PETA and Edward Taub. It was produced by Noam Osborne and Julia DeWitt with sound design by Stephen Jackson who, along with Phil Domhofsky, composed all the music you heard. Love and Radio is produced by Stephen Jackson and Julia DeWitt. Our managing producer is Phil Domhofsky. We are a production of Luminary Media. I'm Nick Vanderpool. Thanks for listening.